Hey everyone, it's Jana. We're still taking a break during the holidays, but come the new year, we'll have a bunch of new episodes. In the meantime, have a listen to this one from the archives. It's called Pieces of Light, and I chose it because of its emphasis on spirituality and what my guest calls living in the question or getting comfortable with not knowing what's next and why things are the way they are. And as America stumbles into the year 2017 with an unpredictable Twitter-obsessed president-elect about to be sworn in, many of us are very uncomfortable wondering what's next and why things are the way they are. So here is your bit of calm before the storm. It is far and away the most listened to episode we've ever aired. So I think you'll enjoy it. Happy holidays, folks. We'll see you in the new year. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Conversations about caregiving tend to focus on the stress and strain of the work. And it is work, and it is stressful, but caregiving can also be highly rewarding and produce positive gains. Today, we're going to dive into that end of the pool and learn how one woman's experience of caring for her father led to positive transformation. I'm joined from New York by Priya Soni, who is such a huge fan of adult child caregivers that she's dedicated herself to creating a space for their stories and made it her mission to build a movement of mentors, adult child caregivers who are using their stories as a tool to help the millions of people currently caring for a loved one or certain to take on this role in the future. Priya Soni, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we get too deep into this, can you explain the term adult child caregivers for our listeners? It may be unfamiliar to them because you use that a lot in your work. Mm-hmm. So it's it's basically children who become adults who have been in a situation caring for their parents. And the way I describe it is caring for a parent through aging, illness, and or disability. And so in the case of my father, he had all three. He was aging he had an illness, a neurological condition, and then that actually moved into him having several disabilities from this particular neurological condition. And so I also think of adult children as being people who have possibly even been caring for their parent from the time that they were very young mm-hmm. into adulthood. I think of adult children who have been caring for their parents in their teens to their 20s to their 40s to their 60s, just the whole gamut. Okay. Well, I think it's Pretty safe to say that the the goal of all caregivers is to keep our loved ones healthy and secure, but we're a very diverse bunch. So I think the way we mm-hmm. go about it is based on a lot of different factors, your cultural background, your socioeconomic background, you name it. So tell us a little bit about your cultural background, your family life, where you grew up, and that sort of thing. Sure. So I grew up in Maryland in a community that's centered right between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore because my mom worked in D.C., my dad worked in Baltimore, so it just made sense. And the town I grew up in was quiet. It was a quiet neighborhood. I grew up with a lot of families, children in the neighborhood. A lot of kids I went to school with lived there. 
And I'd say we grew up in a middle-class family. Both of my parents came to the United States on scholarship to complete their graduate studies. And actually, they met in Memphis, Tennessee. And they wouldn't have actually met in India because they were from different class systems. Hmm. So they have a really interesting story where my mom was doing a clinical internship in psychology in Memphis while my dad was working on his Ph.D. in biochemistry. And one day, my dad was in a building on the seventh floor, and he saw my mom coming out of a car, and he said to his friend, that's the lady I'm going to marry. (laughs) And many years before that, my mother actually um, had said, I want to marry somebody with the last name of Sony. I don't even know how that even came to be true, but talk about synchronicity. So (laughs) they both were very influenced by their subcultural values, and also sort of marrying both of the cultures, the Indian and the American culture. Uh-huh. Um, so much so that they, you know, after their wedding was an Indo-American wedding, and they had the garlands that were red to uh-huh. show marriage in India and garlands that were white to show marriage in the United States. And that's just how we grew up. My sister and I, who's two years younger than me, that's just how we grew up, basically taking in both of those cultures. And our parents really just guiding us to explore the American culture because they also knew that that was the decision they made to raise us here in this country. So yeah, so that's, that's how we grew up, with a, with a great sort of cultural background and understanding that we had the openness to express what was on our minds. It was very common for us to sit at the dining room table and to have conversations as a family. So, you know, and we would talk about our value system and why that was important to have as we were growing up. We talked a lot about spirituality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my sister and I always had a chance to ask our parents questions that would be interesting to us, such as, you know, arranged marriages mm-hmm. in India and, and why that was important and why people did that. And is it marriage about love? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or you get married and what about the men and the women and their roles? So things like that. It was a fun childhood, a lot of vacations on the beach and grew up with a dog and had lots of friends. So it was great. And so it's just you and your sister, no other siblings? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And you're first generation because your parents were both born in India. Is that right? Yes. They came here in the late 60s okay. and got married and then had us some years later. You've described yourself as being a primary, a secondary, and a long-distance caregiver. So if you can take us through your evolution of care with your father and his illness and mm-hmm. uh, how that all played out. Sure. So my father had a neurological condition that spanned 12 years, and it was a condition that doctors were never able to diagnose or pinpoint the origin. So. We, as a family, lived in the questions for those 12 years. And the first six years, and with a long illness, care does take an evolution, and it looks differently as the years progress. And so the first six years were about being a companion, his advocate, going to doctor's visits with him, monitoring his medications. There were different things that we would do, creative strategies. Like my background, having been an actor, um, I had some training in voice voice Mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. And so I remember one specific experience where my father was making a call to deal with some household maintenance stuff. And the person on the other end could not understand anything that he was saying, because by this point, he was slurring in his speech. And then on top of that, he had a thick Indian accent. And so I started to see that he was backing away from even taking these sort of smaller tasks, which were becoming bigger tasks, and deciding just not to do it. 
And so for me, it was about being his advocate and trying to empower him through the experience. So we would sit down and we'd talk about taking a beat between your thoughts and taking time as he would speak. Hmm. So that was sort of like an example of the different pieces of care that I would give. And then it was just every single sort of symptom that we would see. Sometimes it was sort of me being obsessive and checking on the Internet, talking to doctors, asking tons of questions just trying to navigate through this terrain of, of symptoms that we had no idea of, of, of what it was. And through the time that my father was ill, doctors did think that he had several different things. For example, they thought that he had multiple system atrophy. They thought he had cerebellar ataxia, something with the frontal lobe. There was even some talk about Parkinson's, but all the tests were inconclusive or considered normal. And so we just had to ultimately come to this place of acceptance. And that place of acceptance was led by my father because he had come to that place of acceptance or he was at least in a journey to, and we believe that he did come to that place by the time he passed. His last six years of being sick with this neurological condition, I call like the most intense period of time. That's when we would start to see him needing to use a walker and then move through a power chair to having his last few years, I think it was about four years, where he wasn't able to speak. He had speech aphasia. And it was difficult in a way where we just didn't know how to plan for any of this. We didn't know if it was going to be 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. We had no idea. And so the financial planning of this was we have to be very conservative in our thinking. Mm-hmm. And what it also asked me to do in this experience was to, again, continue to be creative. So there was one instance where I remember my dad usually just watched television for like an hour at nighttime, and I remember he was trying to tell us something, and I just sat there with him really trying to understand what he was he was saying because he couldn't speak. And so he usually used his iPad as the voice by this point, and his power chair was like his legs. And I sat there with him, looking at his iPad, really trying to figure it out, getting a piece of paper. It was like a puzzle, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what he was trying to say. And all he needed us to do was to turn off the dishwasher Mm. because it was too loud. And he needed to just watch a little TV. But it took us an hour to figure that out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So at that point that night, I got a piece of cardboard. I printed out some keyboard image off of the Internet. And I just said, okay, using an iPad is just not going to be the way to go. I think that to have him feel heard and to have us feel understood as well as him, we need to think about this differently. So everyone, let's start to think about not asking him open-ended questions, but let's start to think about asking him questions that basically could help him answer a yes or a no. And so I put like two keys on the keyboard that said yes and no. Hmm. And then if he needed to get some food or he needs to use the bathroom or he needed our attention for something, I would put little pictures on the keyboard so he could just point at it and we would know what he would need. Hmm. And the other thing I did was my background is in sign language as well, American Sign Language. And so initially in, in, in the last six years, when he was able to use his hands and be a little bit more mobile, I started to teach him signs for different things that he needed. So if he needed a window to be opened because he had asthma, I would show him a sign that would help us understand what window was. And then I'd show everybody, this is what it looks like when he's actually making the sign. Because it would look different than how I was doing it as compared to how he was doing it. 
Mm-hmm. And then if he couldn't understand how to form a sign with his hands, we would create a whole new sign. So it became our own language in a lot of ways. Well, wow, how and interesting. That also mm-hmm. Yeah. So those creative strategies were like different things that I would do, which in, in addition to sort of like helping him like make his food and things like that. Mm-hmm. Were you living but with your parents at that point? No, I was, well, I was living with my parents for a period of time from 2009 to 2010, and uh-huh. then I moved back to New York, and while I was in New York, I was traveling about four to seven times a year, back and forth, just being uh-huh. home for periods of time, caring uh-huh. for it, and then doing some long-distance caregiving from this end, overseeing some of the different things that we needed to oversee, and just helping my mom out uh, with anything that she needed. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how your sister participated in your dad's care. Were you both equally active in yeah, care? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think very early on, I recognized we both bring different skill sets uh-huh. to the caring of our father. My sister's background is being a school psychologist, and my background is being a teacher and advocate in like disabilities work. And I was able to sort of come in and just sort of be that person who implemented plans and care plans and communication plans and things like that. And was there for him emotionally, but my sister really came from the psychology perspective and was, you know, 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And I think that they were very similar in a lot of ways too. Mm-hmm. And so having just basically having the respect for each other and how we were caring for our dad throughout the time, like I recognize that too, through her experience that she's gone through this emotional journey with him. And I think she, I, I want to help her see it through. And so that's what, that's what also came from the experience too. Mm-hmm. That's really great because so often in families you get sibling conflict when the chips are down and mom or dad needs care. One sometimes people just check out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that we didn't have differing thoughts or perspectives on things, but it was just how we talked about it. Like we talk, our family talked. We we were communicators, so we all would like sometimes my mom, my sister, and I would have three different perspectives, and then my dad would have a fourth. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was like okay, so. How uh-huh. do we just marry all of those? Because we do need to have some sort of consensus about what we're going to do next. So we just would talk about it. And sometimes it would be talking for a long time. And then, you know, at a certain point, we'd just have to say, okay, let's just try this, this particular way out and see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. Um, Gee, that's, that's so healthy. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. I mean, I think just from like a, a young, I mean, my mom was a psychologist for many years. So uh-huh. I think that was sort of like this innate thing that she brought to our family. And when we were kids, we may not have liked being asked about how we were feeling and what was going on or wanting to talk to her about, like, many, many things that she wanted to talk about. But as adults, as we grew up, we really appreciated that that was the dynamic that she opened up for us mm-hmm. as kids. And really paid dividends in adulthood. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> so when you took your father to the doctor for these multiple attempted diagnoses, did you consider a PET scan or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I know that's yeah. really expensive too. So that's not always the best thing. Yeah, we had done a CAT scan and an MRI. We had, we had done it all, mm-hmm. and my mom worked in a hospital, so she had access to some specialists as well. And we had actually had him seen by people on the East Coast and people when they when they moved to the Northwest, people over there as well. So wow. it just ultimately we discovered that we weren't going to get an answer, <laughs> any answer. That's just incredible to think that, you know, for 12 years, you've got to live in the questions, as you said. Yeah. Okay, so your father passed away a year ago, and how old was he when he died? 75. Oh, that's pretty young. 
youngish, 75. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And he was sick to varying mm-hmm. degrees for 12 years. So in the early stages, were you optimistic? And at, at what point did you mm-hmm. sort of throw in the towel and say, we're on our own here, we need to figure out how to handle this? And how did you respond? How did you react to that? That must have been really hard for you. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. I think I first operated from a sense of denial, like this could be fixed, this can't happen. Like he started walking, his gait was affected. And so it was very obvious where he was just shuffling as he was walking. He couldn't pick his legs up and they were very stiff. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, so we're just going to have to help him work with his gait. And that's just how we'll be. And then as different things progressed, I started to see, okay, there's an evolution with whatever's happening here. Mm -hmm. And so somebody has to have answers. So then it became like becoming very obsessive and somewhat frustrated with us not being able to have an answer. And then I think it was 2006. It was like three years into his illness. And I remember my sister called because she had actually accompanied or she'd spoken to my mom about a doctor's visit. And the doctor thought that he had multiple system atrophy, which had a very short lifespan. Multiple system atrophy? Is that what you said? Yeah. And so it had a very short lifespan. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I was like, wow, okay, this actually could be really bad. This could be pretty detrimental to our family Mm -hmm. and to dad. And okay, so this is actually something that I have to wrap my head around. And so it became that. And then we realized it, it wasn't going to be this particular multiple system atrophy. And we just weren't going to really know what it was. And I think that's the difference with how we grew up with that this Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy, mm-hmm. where growing up in a family that was pretty spiritual, we relied on that a lot. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like my dad led the way with a lot of facts. Mm-hmm. He started to accept and find some calm and some peace in what was happening with him. We had no choice and felt like we need to honor and respect that too and accept it as well. And so I think that really helped is that we talked a lot about it as a family. I had a small tribe of friends that I would talk about it with. And ultimately, it was acceptance. My dad always said that his ability to speak may have been taken away and his ability to to balance and to walk may have been taken away, but spirituality was given back to him. And so we use that as sort of a mantra to move through like the emotional and physical fatigue throughout the years. Wow. And how did your mom react? I want to talk about her a little bit, mm-hmm. how she's doing now and how she w- dealt with it then and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, today she's doing quite well. I mean, I think she's, she definitely misses her partner in life, but she feels his energy around him all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think she enjoys the solitude. I think there's a lot of busyness in the house with my dad and, and, and a lot of his needs, but she, she misses him dearly, as we all do. But the experience was quite difficult for her because she always sees my dad as as the guy who is always on his feet, going, 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 never stopping. He never sat down to becoming a man that was in a power chair, not able to balance on his own. His head was prompt forward because his neck vertebrae Mm -hmm. wasn't able to stand on its own. And it was just sort of difficult to be a witness to all of that, Mm -hmm. to be a witness to having her spouse like that, to the dreams that they had. They had expected that their years after retirement would be traveling around the world. And they had built their life based off of that. Mm -hmm. And so much so that we didn't take a lot of like long vacations because they had planned to take really long vacations and travel around the world after retirement. So giving up on that dream 
for both of them was difficult. And so I'm sure she went through like many different emotional phases. But ultimately, they think the thing that brought her a lot of joy was that my father and her discovered some great sort of commonalities that could come out of this experience. My mom has started to write a memoir. Hmm. And my dad noticed that my mom was doing that. And when he was able to use a computer and type, he had told us that's what he wanted to do. And we really wanted him to leave his legacy to be there for my niece and for all of us. And so he started to write the stories of his life and all the different phases that he went through. Hmm. And then because we as a family would communicate through email a lot, being in different places at times, we were encouraged to just ask questions about things. So we would ask our dad, talk to us about acceptance. What does that mean to you? How are you feeling about it today as compared to maybe a few years ago? Mm -hmm. Talk to us about death and dying. Mm -hmm. Are you scared? What are the things that actually bring you peace? And so we also put that in his memoirs. And so we completed that for him two years before he passed. And he knows that that book is there. Mm-hmm. And that people in our family can see it and people in our, our life can see that book and know that he left a long-lasting legacy full mm-hmm. of many promises. Mm-hmm. And I think through that, that really sort of like brought a lot of joy to both of them. So, but it was hard for my mom. She definitely went through experiences where my dad had many falls. That was very scary. She had a hard time when they moved to the Northwest, building a community there because she's a people person and she loves to be of service and be in community. And then once she found a church which is the Unitarian Church that she's a part of, she was able to really empower herself to build even more of a community, to share her voice, to be of service to many in the community at her church as well. And I think that really helped her. So she had a lot of up and down moments, but I think throughout it all, she would tell you that she she really thrived from it. When you say the Northwest, where are you talking about? Portland, Oregon. Oh, Portland. Okay. Is that where she is now? Yes, that's where she's now. Okay, and so she moved all the way across the country. Did she go out there with your dad, or when did they move out? Yes, (laughs) yes. So my sister and brother-in-law, I think, were they were in Portland. My sister had moved to Portland some years before, and I was in Los Angeles at the time. So it made sense for them to start thinking about moving to the West Coast. And my sister and brother-in-law would talk to them about it a lot. And then with my dad's illness becoming a little bit worse, they start to think, well, if we're going to make the move, we should do it soon. And so four years into his illness, I think it was in 2007, they moved across country. So they knew if they waited any longer, he may have more of a difficult time traveling and actually going through an experience of, of moving. So yeah, so they moved in 2007. And okay. he spent his last eight years in Portland, mm-hmm. in his home. And so you would visit him up from LA? Yeah, so I started to visit him from L.A. a lot. It was just a two-hour plane trip, so I'd go up there a lot on weekends and sometimes uh, a lot of times on vacation, take some vacation days and go up there and spend time with them and sort of talk to the doctors, just figure out what was going on, what they needed, how I could help. And at the same time, I was running a theater program for adults with developmental disabilities. And so I was able to take like the plans and implement some of those things that I was learning through that experience uh-huh. and bring them home and start to think about how that could apply to my dad and his needs. And then I moved in with them in 2009 mm-hmm. and spent time there being a primary caregiver to him with all the needs that he had at that time and then felt the need to move back to New York and live my life here, knowing that I was going to be traveling back and forth for his care. So you live with them for yeah. a year? About six to eight months, actually. Okay. And tell me about that experience for you. What kind of an adjustment that was? Mm. 
that was really eye-opening for me. You know, there's one thing when you visit your family for a weekend or even a week and you're helping with care in that way. It's another thing when you live with your parents, especially after a long time of not living with them. And I started to see what he needed on a daily basis and sort of the weight of that and like on my mother. And so I just felt this need to take a, take a bigger role in all of it. And it also provided a space where I could just start to have really meaningful conversations with him about how I could help him, the advice that he would give me, where he saw my career going and what he would hope for me in my life mm-hmm. in ways where you're on a shorter visit, you don't always have those moments. Mm-hmm. But when you are living with your parent, you're able to sort of have these sort of meaningful moments. It also got me more involved in just noticing some of the urgencies that were going on. I remember a really scary experience was watching him not being able to breathe because he had really bad asthma. And so we had to constantly, even during the winter, keep the windows open. And just watching that experience to moments where he wasn't able to swallow well and he would almost be choking. And so it was just seeing that over and over again, it definitely weighed on me emotionally. But when I lived there, everything was built around his care. And so that's all I was thinking about. When could I be home for it? What would he need if I left? You know, how long should I leave? So he felt that he was supported. But it also, like I said, it brought about a lot of great aspects as well. Mm -hmm. When you moved, did you have any idea how long you'd be there? Or what were your expectations? Yeah, I had no idea how long I was going to be there. I thought at least six months, possibly a year or two, perhaps I would stay in Portland. I initially moved to Portland because of my father and knowing that this illness was progressing. And then I thought, well, perhaps I will actually live there. And then I felt this pull to move back to New York and I had to sort of navigate and manage like how that was going to look like in supporting my mom and my dad through this experience. But yeah, I initially did think I was going to stay for a longer period of time. But my parents were also very supportive and really wanted to see me live out my dreams and my desires. And Mm -hmm. so that was a really helpful sort of gentle push (laughs) to, to, to go. I think they were seeing the weight of it on me and they didn't want that. And they also had gone through that experience themselves. Their parents, you know, weren't initially like ones to say, yes, go to America and live out your dreams. But their parents really encouraged them as well. So I think that that was something that they really wanted to hold strong with me, especially my dad. He wanted to know that while he was on this earth, Mm -hmm. that he was seeing me living out the ways that I wanted to do. And he shared that with me. And so that made it much easier for me to sort of follow my dreams and my passions and what it was that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Must have been a bit of a heartache, though, to actually leave. Mm -hmm. It was. It was really difficult. I didn't really know what was going to happen, but it was check-ins with my mom almost every day or every other day. And then it just came, I came to the conclusion, well, I think I'm just going to have to go back for periods of time. And luckily, I had a great job and I work remotely, or I can work remotely. And so I would just take my work with me and I would be able to do that. And so that was really helpful. Mm -hmm. Did they have outside help coming in? Yeah, so we had an agency that was in the area that would come and help out with doing some supplemental things, maybe four hours at a time, mm-hmm. help my mom with cooking or cleaning or just being there for moral support. 
And then in my dad's last years, he needed to have 24 hours, seven days a week caregiving. Mm-hmm. It was just not possible anymore for my mom or for, for me in the way that I was doing it. And we hired two amazing people that were very in tune with the compassionate and cultural care that we wanted to give Mm -hmm. our father and Mm -hmm. they were there for him in his last years every Mm -hmm. day they're just amazing were they living with your parents no they would just they would come and shift 12 and 12 Uh Uh Mm -hmm. Uh but that's a huge financial burden for them to bear your parents Mm -hmm. oh absolutely incredible and I have to give credit to them because they really saved well. I mean, a lot of it was to travel around the world. And so a lot of that went to his care throughout the years. And my uncle took a great role as far as like helping us with the finances and making sure that we were keeping that on track throughout the years. But Mm -hmm. it was constant conversations of how long do we do this? So there was a lot of anxiety in that. Yeah, because in order for you to go on and live your life as your parents wanted you to, then you were no longer available to help them. And so that makes it necessary Mm -hmm. for them to hire somebody. Mm -hmm. When you talked about your dad, emailed or talked in person about end of life, what what did Mm -hmm. he say about all that stuff? I mean, he was pretty honest. I think there were moments where he felt really scared about it. He was I don't think he was scared of the actual death, mm-hmm. the actual bad experience. Mm-hmm. I think he was more nervous and concerned about the dying process, like mm-hmm. how this would continue, how he would feel, the pain that he would be in, the impact that it would have on all of us. Those were the things that he was sort of very concerned about. In our emails response back, it was a lot of, we're going to be okay, just letting him know, thank you for sharing all of this, and just supporting him and empowering him to continue to keep sharing with us, because we needed to hear his voice even when he couldn't speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Were you there when he yeah. passed? I was. And was it I in was, the house? So it was. Yeah, so he was very adamant, as were we, that he passed in his own home. He came from a culture that really respects and going through the experience uh, as you're getting older and the elderly especially um, was really important. And so we knew as his daughters and my mom knew as his wife that he grew up in that experience. I mean, taking care of people in your life and in your, in your family, especially where my dad grew up in Punjab, was incredibly important. Nobody ever said, I can't do this right now or I'll do it later. It was always like, how can I help? What mm-hmm. do you need? I'll mm-hmm. get it right now. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of came with that approach in his caregiving and took that until the end of his life with him staying at home. So for an illness that went on for many years, the passing happened quite quickly. Mm -hmm. I found out on Monday, January 19th at 7.45 p.m. I just remember looking at my phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mom had left a message and she said, your father's taken a turn for the worst. I'm not sure where this is going to go. Hospice was by that point with our family. And they had told us a year earlier that they thought he had only a few months. And then in early January 2015, they had told us that he has two to three weeks to two to three months. However, a year before that, we thought the same thing. So it was very evident that my father had a lot of drive to live. So when my mom called me, I just thought, well, is this actually going to happen? And I had this moment where I could have really freaked out and gotten upset, but instead I sort of turned myself around and went into this class that was it was a spiritual class that I was attending and just sat in the space of all of these people. Hmm. And it was really helpful. And then I came home and I booked a flight to go home the next day. And I got home the next day at 745 at my parents' house. 
And then the following day, after we all had a family dinner, my father passed at 7.45. Hmm. So 48 hours later, he hmm. passed from the time that I found out. Wow. And it happened very quickly. And he was surrounded by every. He had seen everyone. And I do believe that he waited for me. Huh. I do think that he was like, this is not going to happen until Priya arrives to care. Uh-huh. And yeah. you were in New York at that point, so you flew west. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. It's such a dignified yeah. way to go. Yes, you know? it is. It is. It was quite an interesting experience. My sister was actually with him in his last moment, and we were in the other room just putting some, some things away in the kitchen, and she just came running out to say, he's passed. Mm. And it was extremely peaceful. And it was really important for her to be there with our dad in his last moment. Mm. And then we just walked into the room and just all had a moment. Mm-hmm. And definitely called somebody, mm-hmm. uh, called somebody from hospice to make sure that we were, you know, there's, it's a very surreal and yet real experience. And there's, there's like this moment of, is this, did this actually happen? So we called somebody there just to just to make sure we, we we knew that it did, but we wanted to be really sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, and he looked so peaceful, uh-huh. and it happened so peacefully, which thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's, it's really great that you had that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very thankful for that. A lot of gratitude for that. Well, you talk a little bit on your website about moving to a joyful place after your father's death. Can you talk about the new way of living that you refer to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, after my father passed, I went through all of the emotions that one normally goes through with the grieving process. So I went through a lot of anger, frustration, sadness, and then I absolutely went through utter exhaustion. I was just exhausted and exhausted feeling that way. And with a long illness such as this, you actually luckily have a period of time to to grieve throughout the process. Mm-hmm. And so I went through phases of grief throughout it. So I was able to come out on the other end. And I think when you witness somebody going through the dying process and then through death, there's a rebirth. And so I had these moments where I was just listening to myself. And I just remember thinking, well, what do you want the most right now in your life? Like, think about what dad's taught you. What, what, what would bring his legacy alive? And I thought to myself, you know, I really want peace. I really want just joy. I want happiness. And so I started to listen to what more of me wanted, not all of me, just more of me. And that started to inform how I was going to move forward. And then I started to think about my dad's legacy. I was looking through his memoirs and the different sort of pieces of advice and the way that he lived his life. And I thought to myself, well, okay, I want to sort of like take that energy and what he taught me and and keep that alive. And so I ended up volunteering for an organization that helps kids in rural parts of India. Education was incredibly important to my dad. Mm -hmm. And so I started to do that. And then I started to uh, fundraise for an organization that serves people who are too ill or can't shop on their own. It serves them nutritional meals and it serves the families and their caregivers. Mm-hmm. And so I started to fundraise for that. And, you know, giving back was really, and being of service was really important to my father. What organization was that? God's Love We Deliver. Oh, sure. Okay. In mm-hmm. New York. Excellent organization. And I really felt good. I could start to feel good. Mm-hmm. And I started to really enjoy that feeling. And then I started to be surrounded by like-minded people, people who've been through challenging and amazing journeys. And with the announcement of my father's passing, 
because I didn't really talk a lot about my dad being sick throughout the years. It just, it was always a movie playing in the back of my head, Mm -hmm. storylines there. And the moment that I talked about it was the moment that it just started to become even a bigger part of my life. Yeah. And it's sort of a protective nature, I think. Mm -hmm. But the moment that it was announced my father had passed away, I started to have conversations with different people who had been through caregiving for their parents, who'd been through law, and that also opened up a whole new world for me, where I was starting to build a community, community that I didn't feel that I had in a big way when I was going through the experience Mm -hmm. for my dad. So all of those things really helped me build more joy in my life. And I don't always think about joy being like this amazing, blissful feeling to have. I ultimately think about it in these spaces that we have in our life where we might find a challenging experience, but there's like these small pieces of light that come through. And I shared about that in the blog that I wrote, where it was, for example, I was taking care of my dad and he needed to put slippers on his feet. Mm -hmm. And I remember in that moment, it it could have brought a lot of sadness to me, but I put the slippers on his feet and he just touched my head to show a sign of respect. And and he showed like such appreciation for, for my help. I remember thinking there's there's joy in that. There's there's actually joy in those those experiences that can feel such so much despair in. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in this other piece that you wrote on your blog about the benefits of solitude. And I know that your father okay. encouraged this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So solitude is this interesting term and and way of being. My father, from a very young age, used to meditate and. Every day before work, he would always go into a study and he would meditate. And then when he would even have like his breakfast, he would do it in silence. And that would be really important to him. And then sometimes when he would go to work, he'd put on a, a tape that was very soothing or calm or had some sort of great spiritual message. And I remember just witnessing all of that. Like he really just appreciated the need for quiet. And quiet was something that I wasn't at home in Sebastian. I lived in New York City. Mm-hmm. I was running around as an actor for a long time. But when my dad got sick, going through the experience and finding solitude in, in like the different moments was incredibly important. So I started to become interested in how to find peace, how to find places and moments where I could just completely be as opposed to do, because we're human beings as opposed to human doings. And I started to really enjoy that. I also think that solitude is this thing you know, when I was going through the experience, I remember thinking, I, I really need a community. I really just need a community of, of people who've been to this experience. And I couldn't often find one, especially for having a parent with a mystery illness. Mm-hmm. But I also think that when you're a caregiver and you go through this experience, there's a certain sense of solitude that you need to have, that when you don't have a community or you don't have the community that you want around you, solitude can actually be your friend. And so it can be a companion that walks with you. And sometimes you have to walk alone in the journey and there'll be people waiting for you on the other end. But sometimes it's important to do that because there's a growth from this experience. And so I think when I was caregiving for my father, I experienced all of that and growth was was born throughout it. Mm -hmm. Your father's words, please always remember to let go of the noise within and around you. So what was the noise within that he oh, yes. meant? Yeah. He would always say, my dad, like I said, he was very much on the go, always doing something. 
And for a long period of time before he got into meditation, and even as he was doing meditation, he was always busy with something and always very concerned about making sure that he was working enough and providing well and all of that stuff. When he, once he got sick, just really believed that if we just sort of like lived a bit more peaceful, because you can get very caught up in like all the different things that you need to do, the things that people need from you, living, you know, within sort of the noise in your head, never like turning it off. And so when he saw me, it was actually when I first moved into their home, it was a big piece of advice because he saw me just doing so much and things that he was proud of, but he also saw me just really not taking a break within my life. And so he really wanted to share with me that through these moments of peace, so much more is born than through the moments of noise. And so I really took that to heart. And I think about that now, and I think about this business that I've started, and I really want to make sure that I'm creating a space that is full of peace and joy for people. It's a space where they can feel safe at home and understood. Just to get back to your mom for a minute, can you, can you talk about her health? How is she doing? It's been a year now. So how does she spend her yeah. time, and how is she, how is she doing health-wise, et cetera? Health-wise, she's doing well. She had like a small health care recently, but overall, she's fine. She's really thriving in life. She's a big part of her community at church. Mm-hmm. She um, actually goes and does some counseling for people within her community if they need help for stuff. She's writing her memoirs. Uh-huh. She has something called a spiritual discussion group on a monthly basis huh. where she invites people from her church and other people from, like even my sister's friends. So there's many generations of ages and different people who attend and they're usually very big groups and they have conversations about, they'll pick a subject, they don't matter, such as like happiness and they'll just start talking about it. And she enjoys doing things like that. And she's a grandmother now. so mm-hmm. That um, helps. <laughs> really. Yes, yes, yes. That's definitely brought her a lot of purpose as well. So she's, overall, she's doing pretty well. How and, big is that house she lives in? It's a one-level home. Okay. So okay. It's, it's not too big. Manageable. Yeah, we, That's we really great that it's on one level. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, originally the vision that we had would be that she lived closer to where my sister lives. But in Portland, the homes are older, and it's just not easily... My dad wasn't able to easily navigate around the different turns in those older homes. And mm-hmm. so we had to find somewhat of a newer home, which was a little bit further away. And uh, we found one that was a one-level home and has a beautiful backyard, and it's just very calming. So, and she meditates, too. That's really great. Yeah. You must be really happy about that because it can yeah. go in lots of different yeah. directions. They were married for a long time. How long? How many years? Yes. They got married in 1968, and my dad passed in um, 2015. So doing the math, which I'm doing poorly right now. (laughs) 68, Um, so this would be 47 years, something like that? 47 years, I think it was, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, sounds like she's really handling it well, not to sugarcoat it by any means, because it's really tough. Yeah. I think her spiritual practice has her back. My sister's close by, and I visit often. So she has us, and then she has a big community of people around her. She's such a people person and being of service, so I think that's been really helpful to her. Mm-hmm. So to switch gears, tell us about the caregiving effect and your business. You've said that in caring for your father, what you needed most was not something but mm-hmm. someone. So tell us more about mm-hmm. that and your work. Yeah, so the caregiving effect, I always say that it's turning this unexpected role as a caregiver into a role of a lifetime. 
And that role of a lifetime is being a mentor to the many who are currently walking the path of caregiving or who will walk the path of caregiving. And I think the seeds were planted several years before my dad passed. And I remember my mom was getting knee replacement surgery and my father was home and he wasn't doing well. And I was shuffling back and forth between both of them. My mom was in a skilled nursing facility. Mm -hmm. My dad was at home. And I remember just going back and forth every day for a month. And it was sometime during and after the holidays. And I remember thinking, is anybody else going through this? Where are the people out there who are going through this? I know that there are support groups, but I can't seem to find one that really sort of works for the situation I'm in. But where are our stories and where are our voices? And I just remember having that wonderance in my head. Fast forward to after my dad passed and the announcement was made, and I just started to have this conversation with people. I start to talk to people about, you know, their loss and their, their experience caregiving. And within those moments, it was definitely rooted in a lot of pain and sadness and defeat, confusion, frustration, a lot of that. But what also came out of that experience, which is really amazing, were like these nuggets of wisdom and insight. And as much as I was sort of guiding somebody through the experience of having them share their story with me, they were also sharing a moment and some experiences that really helped me Mm -hmm. heal. And I just thought, well, wouldn't that be just a great thing to be able to do? And yet, an unintended yet beautiful effect of caregiving. So the caregiving effect is not only the after effects of what comes from it, not only the extension of the experience, but it's actually these sources of learning that happen while you go through the experience. And it's the culmination of all of that that I consider the caregiving effect. And in creating this space, I remember I went to like a sort of like little qualitative research tour. Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to a young woman And I just said, tell me about you and your story, not the story that you tell everybody that's about your parent and all the things that they were going through and things like that. I want to hear about that. But tell me about you, what you experienced, what you saw, what you felt. And she looked at me and she said, wow, nobody has ever asked me that question, Mm -hmm. ever. And so I thought, well, well, then I'm going to create a space to ask those questions, because I think that we need to felt, feel heard, and we also need to be able to, as I say with my program, uncover, discover, and recover from this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think was the hardest thing for you in going through all this with your dad? Not that there was any one thing, but talk about some of the hardest things and some of the best things. I think the emotional and physical fatigue was really hard throughout the years. I also think that My sister and I went through this experience at a younger age. It started in our 20s, and we didn't have a huge community of people around in our age range that were going through the experience. So we had each other, but it wasn't something that I felt the most comfortable to be talking about in just general conversation because not a lot of our friends and around us were feeling the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that was also hard was my dad stopped being the reference point and letting us know how he was doing. It became the doctors, the hospice workers, the other healthcare practitioners, and in the later years, uh, the, the caregivers that we had. So in a lot of ways where I just go to my dad and say, how are you doing, Dad, today? Let's have a conversation. And it, it wouldn't be that. I, I would ask him in some ways, but then I'd also ask others to share their input about how he was doing. And so at times it felt very odd and sad to me. And I think the other thing, too, is when we got through this, experience 
of just accepting living with these questions that were constantly there and that we constantly have to address. I think it was hard for people around us to accept that. I think there, at a certain point, people still wanted to know like what this was and perhaps why we weren't trying to figure out what this was. And so having to answer to that was an interesting sort of feeling. I could get that. I mean, I, you know, for a period of time, I did want to understand and try to fix this and try to cure this and try to figure out what it was. And then after a while, it just, it wasn't important. The important part was being there, being a source of support and making sure my dad felt heard and respected and, and was living with dignity. But yeah, the, those were like the different things that we struggled with. I think with my dad, I, and one of the things I witnessed and also struggled with is that, you know, a lot of times people would see his illness or his disability first, no fault of their own. I mean, it, it was very apparent that he mm-hmm. wasn't doing well. You could see it as soon as you walked through the door. But he had given many years of service to his profession and to the family until that point. And it was hard when the first thing that people saw was sort of like visually what was there. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't everything he brought to his life up until that point. And like I said, I mean, understandably so, but it was it was hard. It was hard. I think there were moments where I just wanted him to be recognized. I mean, he was a PhD and he was a forensics chemist and he did all of these sort of amazing things. But it's, it's sort of a difficult situation. Yeah. But going through the experience and caring for him as long as I did, I didn't expect that it would result into what I'm doing today. And that's sort of what I say is like the unintended, beautiful aspect of caregiving and of care in general and what it can do. I think knowing that I was there and present and willing will also bring me a lot of reward in the future and a lot of peace to know that dad knew that I was there for him and knew that we all were there for him. But yeah, having this new purpose in life and knowing the purpose came from this experience is really gratifying. So since we're in a political season, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the politics of care. If anything, what you'd like to hear more about from the candidates or Mm -hmm. even local politicians, what should we be doing differently? And what should we be hearing more about? Yeah. So one of the things that is interesting, just coming from a disabilities background and being an advocate in that way, is this may not be something that's talked about in the political realm, but one of the things that I feel that we need to be thinking about is that, you know, a a lot of healthcare professionals aren't trained to deal with disability. And I saw that at times with my father. So, for example, there's sometimes a fixed ideology when you deal with disability and that, you know, when you have one, it reduces the quality of life, comes from what, what we know is the medical model. But, like, for example, if somebody who's deaf, and they have an interpreter, like, how are you actually conversing with them? Are you talking to them or are you talking around them? And so I'd love to see more education on compassionate care in that way when dealing with disability and dealing with aging issues. And I'd love to see more policy on paid leave for caregivers who need to go home and take care of their parents, where they'll have job protection, where there maybe isn't an ability to work remotely, and where there is pay also involved with the experience, so to help with their financial security. One of the other things that I think is important is access, this piece of access for affordable counseling. Going through this experience, as we know, like the emotional strain is just, there's such a depth to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of families going through this, people who are in different income brackets, and having affordable counseling and having access to that is incredibly important to the many people who are going through this experience. Yeah, so those are like the, the 
three things that come to mind when I think about mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Well, where can listeners learn more about your work, Priya? There's different ways that they can learn more about the work that I do. Three different ways come to mind. One is my website, which is www.priasony.net. Then I also have a Facebook page called the Caregiving Effect Facebook page. And I'm also doing this project called the Caregiving Effect Instagram project, which actually showcases pictures and captions of adult child caregivers. So it'll share a little bit about how long they've been a caregiver and then also share a bit about a six-word story that shares how it has served them. And then it'll ask one challenge and how it shaped them. And so that's an ongoing project that I'm doing as well. So those are three different ways they can learn more about me, the work that I do, and how they could potentially be involved. Great. And you started down the path of caring for your dad when you were in your 20s, did you say? Yes. And do you mind saying how old you are? Sure, I'm 41. You're 41. So a significant percentage of caregivers are millennials. You're not a millennial, but you were at the peak of your caregiving younger. The mm-hmm. average caregiver is 49. Yeah. So yeah, you're in a really interesting demographic there. Well, I want to give you a yeah. chance to offer some last thoughts. Sure. The last thought that I'd like to share is that if people are looking for a safe, comfortable space, a community and also finding purpose in their experience of caregiving where they're also being part of building a movement. They should look up the work that I'm doing. And if people have any questions or any thoughts or just generally have some other needs that I may not provide, I'm always open to starting those conversations and helping out in any way that I can. That's great. Priya Sony, she's the founder of The Caregiving Effect, a wonderful website for caregivers. Thank you so much for being on the show. I love the work that you're doing and the attitude that you have. It's just so wonderful to hear positive stories about caregiving. Well, thank you so much. I think the work that you're doing is incredibly helpful and so needed. And so thank you for having me on. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise.